started. I hope you all had sandwiches and coffee and some water maybe. Um, so thank you so much for coming to our um, final and special event of the term, which is our the panel discussion on transitional justice co-bodies with Professor Ruti Teitl. And we are incredibly delighted to have such a distinguished panel of speakers, and especially that we finally managed to get Ruti to come to Oxford, which is great. And before I hand over to Professor um, Calypso Nikolaidis, who is going to chair this panel and who is also Professor of International Relations here at the University of Oxford, right in the middle here, um, I just want to say just very quickly some words about the panel, because of course the purpose of the panel is to discuss Ruti's book, Globalizing Transitional Justice, you can see it here, but also to really use this as an entry point into a critical debate about the state of the field of transitional justice and how we can push the research agenda further. And I really hope you have lots of interesting and challenging questions for the Q&A. So we will run the panel, but then there will be a long Q&A, which gives you space to discuss what you would like to discuss. And, um, and I also wanted to quick, quickly say, if you're not on our mailing list yet, uh, because I also always use these opportunities to, of course, promote our group, Oxford Transitional Justice Research. So if you're not on our mailing list yet, yet um, please sign up. Daniel is going to pass around the sheet. Uh, we have really interesting activities and projects going on throughout the year. For example, at the moment, we have a call for academic op-eds for, um, for our online platform, Justice Infonet, and that's a collaborative project between Oxford Transition Justice Research, uh, the Fondation Hirondelle, and the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. So it's a great project, it's a great way of getting your research out there of really making it available to uh, a much broader public. So if you are interested in that, just sign up to the mailing list and you will receive all the information. Okay, so I've already taken up a lot of time. Um, I'm just now going to hand over to um, Calypso and thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Leila. And let me first say that uh, I'm very, I was very honored and happy when Leila asked me to share this panel. Uh, to start with, for internal parochial reason, which is that I think we all believe that the field of transitional justice is very much at the intersection between, of course, the great work of OTGR as well as what we do in IR, and indeed our, our fields, criminal justice, justice in all sorts of ways, and IR are fields that need to continue and deepen the conversation more and more. So this is very important to us um, in DPIR. Now, let me simply echo Leila in saying how happy we are and how happy I am personally to welcome Ruti Taita, who has been in these worlds many times before. But this is really a special moment. It is a book launch. It is a book conversation. And we are going to go, as Leila said, way beyond the book, or a bit beyond the book. I don't know if it's possible to go beyond the book, because the book possible. has everything. <laughs> but uh, this is an OUP book. So of course, we're going to launch it and discuss it here in Oxford University. But obviously, it is also a book of, of great importance for the field. Um, a book which really brings the field of transitional justice to all of the issues that we're debating currently, and indeed a long-awaited book, since as we all know, of course, uh, uh, Ruti published her book on her path-breaking book on transitional justice in 2000, 15 years ago. So long-awaited, but for good reasons, because it's not as though in between she was kind of doing nothing. Uh, she did many things in between, including publish an amazing, very big book called Humanities Law, uh, which is on our reading lists in IR. Ruti, I'm sure you know that and you're not surprised. 
um, a wonderful book for our students to understand how we can think of international relations as direct relationship between the whole, as it were, and citizens and individuals in legal terms. And this is critical, of course, uh, for us. And indeed, it's all part of the same uh, constellations of ideas that Ruti has been pioneered in terms of the role of law and the role of individuals in our international politics. So we're really much looking forward to our conversation, Ruti, today. I should have said to start with, but you all know that Ruti is Stiefel Professor of Comparative Law and Director of the Institute for Global Law, Justice and Policy at the New York Law School, and indeed in New York in general, has been a kind of a pillar of these conversations. <coughs> I had the pleasure of being with Ruti as Strauss Fellow at NYU Law School um, two or three years ago. Uh, and there again, we had these conversations. And we, we are close friends. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today, Ruti. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you um, to provoke this, um, this, this event. Now, to discuss Ruti's book, uh, we have three wonderful colleagues, starting with Lee Payne, who is my dear colleague at St. Anthony's, professor of sociology, and, and, uh, and as you all know, has worked both on issues in Latin America of transition from authoritarianism <laughs> today, I need water, uh, and as well as, um, as issues on social movements, and indeed is also a pioneer in research on transitional justice and on mixing, it's important for us in DPIR, mixing quantitative and qualitative uh, analysis uh, in doing so. Um, so, and I'm, I was going to read your publications, but I think I'm going to skip because I've been told by Leila to go fast. Uh, so, um, I'm going to directly turn to Chandra Suryam, who comes to us from the University of East London, where she's Professor of International Law and International Relation, uh, used to be at SOAS, and has also done a lot of work on these issues of transitional justice, international law, uh, and is there as the inaugural professor of human rights. And Ivor, and finally, Yavor Rangelov is at the Global Security Research, Global Security Program with our friend Mary Calder at LSC. He's a research fellow there, uh, and also co-chairs the London Transitional Justice Network. So I think we have a very distinguished panel. This is going to be a great conversation. We're all very much looking forward to it. And I'm turning to Thanks so much, Calypso and Leila. Um, uh, you mentioned coming to Oxford. Actually, one of the first uh, conversations about my first book was at Oxford. It was, I think, the time of Phil Clark here. And uh, I remember uh, coming and thinking, what an incredible group of researchers, of, of interested students. and. Uh, Having those, you know, how lucky to be able to have those interdisciplinary conversations about a field that is clear, clearly interdisciplinary. So I commend you uh, on continuing that tradition, and thanks uh, all of those who have come. Um, and I want to thank Calypso. Uh, we got a chance to have these, you know, interdisciplinary conversations in, in a, on a sabbatical year at, at Strauss in, in New York, and um, you know, the entire panel uh, are friends, and I want to thank uh, each and every one of you for coming, and, and as you can see, they also come different disciplines. So I think 
that's one of the uh, aspects to this book that I want to get out, or some of the questions of methodology. Before I do that, uh, I asked uh, Layla if she could be so kind to put the cover up. Um, and I'm really hoping uh, that you'll judge this book by the cover. Uh, the cover is um, a wonderful still from a video of William, by William Kentridge, who is a multimedia artist. Uh, we started his training as a lawyer. South African, works out of Joburg, and I came across uh, his work in 2001 when I participated in an art conference, Documenta, on transitional justice, and it was my first art conference on transitional justice. And what I like about this video, you can see it's a loop. It's a still from, from literally a loop, and he, he manages to bridge issues of memory and of empire in, in coming out of Europe with uh, Africa, being working in Africa and issues of, of civil society there. And for me, um, you know, his work and this, this piece is called The Refusal of Time. Uh, it's been showing in New York of late. Uh, the Refusal of Time evokes, a, 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 if I, I'd like to think of as an anti-progressive um, narrative. Uh, you can think of it, uh, uh, Kentridge's work, as the anti-Fukuyama story about post- uh, 20th century, and uh, so that was why I picked uh, this this uh, piece. And one of the essays in the book actually came out of that Documenta conference. Uh, it was uh, on liberal narrative, and that's part of what I was trying to do uh, with the book: is try to tell a story about how transitional justice has changed over the last uh, 10, 15, year, 15 years since my first book came out. Uh, I'm only going to speak briefly in the introduction, but let me hit some of the highlights of why uh, this book. Uh, it's a book of essays, uh, as I mentioned, and we can definitely see that the vocabulary or discourse of transitional justice has continued and even picked up since uh, the first um, uh, uh, iterations uh, around Latin America. Um, many of the folks uh, on the panel, Le uh, Lee in particular, started their work on, uh, on Latin America. I'm originally from Argentina, and what drew me to the topic was an, uh, an interest in how civil society in Argentina were dealing with the uh, crimes of the past, nunca mas, never again, uh, and so forth. And that was the beginning for me of getting into this, and I met, um, I met Yavor uh, shortly thereafter, and a rooftop in the Balkans, um, uh, in Belgrade, and a rooftop in, I like that rooftop in Balkans, that's like <laughs> totally an abstraction. No, it was a rooftop in Belgrade and where he was dealing with some of these issues of, of civil society there, and you'll hear more about that. And, and Chandra, whose work has uh, crossed the globe, uh, but in particular focuses on Africa. So what we, you know, what I've been seeing is that this, the discourse um, uh, has, uh, has <coughs> continued. Um, if we think of mid the Middle East, uh, Tunisia, uh, the, the, uh, the conversations and the demand for justice and accountability that seemed to be at the heart of those revolutions, um, you know, some, there was something there that seemed to be associated with uh, the possibility of a renewed legitimacy. Other parts of the world still uh, struggling with postponed transitional justice, um, and you can think of Lat in Latin America, my home country, Argentina, still has trials of war crimes, uh, for war crimes that were committed in the late 70s, so you can do the math. These are very postponed trials. Um, 
Colombia, a place that I came back from a couple of months ago, is on a very exciting project of hopefully putting an end to one of the longest conflicts in Latin America. And, um, and transitional justice was at the heart of what made the deal possible. Uh, I can say more about that later on. But, but I just want to uh, just highlight three frames, um, and I know that the speakers will, will follow up on this, three frames that might uh, uh, help us see um, you know, what has changed in, 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 in the last 15 years. I would say that in the, in the, first, uh, um, and, and, uh, you know, the first round could be called the givenness of the political transition. And the givenness of transition, so the justice seeking seemed to be driven, uh, I would say, largely by political necessity. And uh, within each country, and you know, you could do that then, you didn't have uh, as many of the global actors that have gotten involved in transitional justice at the time, which I'm talking about in the 80s, uh, if you take a place like Chile or South Africa, they could come up with truth and reconciliation commissions and, uh, and have a highly discretionary approach to criminal justice. Um, there was no UN rapporteur on the, these issues at the time. There wasn't an international criminal court. There were none of the regional courts. So a very, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the entire area of transitional justice could be seen as domestic and political at that time. And the, and the, um, the calculations were driven by political necessity, the givenness of the transition. I would say that shortly thereafter, there's another phase, uh, and um, in, in particular I think of Lee's work here, which is the, the pursuit of other, other objectives, social reconciliation. Uh, um, and, uh, and we can see uh, in a number of essays in my, in my book uh, deal with these issues, but still, these were uh, largely concluded uh, within the state, although you start getting, um, I think, a research agenda. What's best? Can, um, can societies learn from each other? Uh, and, and this is uh, something that you, you probably uh, know, you know, both at Oxford and at a variety of universities around the world, there are, you know, there's a rise of consultancy, uh, concern for a balance in, in uh, transitional justice. Um, but these are uh, not driven by political necessity. There's a normative uh, uh, concern. Um, now, turning to the third stage, and, I'm, and I think of that as the present, um, there's been a development where law looms large, and this might have to do with my lens, but uh, you know, I'm critical of the development, and that is the, uh, the uh, uh, legal necessity, legal necessity driving these decisions, and what you might think of as the human rightsization of transitional justice. And so uh, that, too, has become uh, part of my focus uh, of late, and that is how uh, uh, difficult it has been uh, in, in what you know, I call a global phase. Uh, no, numerous actors, uh, numerous institutions with different stakes in, in the issue of transitional justice, um, the refusal of time, victims from, from a long time ago, but also future victims. The, you generally, liberals only talk about future victims. And, um, and you have this, uh, this uh, concern about how to square uh, these, uh, the circle, how to, um, on the one hand, give full vindication of human rights to victims uh, and to next of kin and others in the society while uh, moving forward. 
this is why I called it transitional justice in the first place, was the idea that part of this was backward-looking and part of it was forward-looking, and that it could never be just backward-looking, that that would not be, uh, um, uh, it's just in, not in keeping with, uh, with political transition. But what we're seeing today with the global phase is this uh, real tensions and dilemmas between the concern for vindicating past human rights and uh, moving forward. And in particular, um, you know, uh, some recent work, I have an article that's uh, going to be part of an online symposium at Opinio Juris this week and, um, and next week, uh, deals with the issue of how to address this lens, and in particular the precedence of the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, which has been uh, really, um, I would say, uh, supervising the transitions in Latin America, and in great part uh, seeking to overturn the amnesties and the more conciliatory approach of the, of the 80s. So those are uh, some themes. I think those three lenses could be, could be useful as a heuristic um, because of the, uh, the interdisciplinary nature of this panel and perhaps the research agendas and, and concerns of students who, who are here today. So uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. Sure. Yeah. Thank you very much, Ruti, yeah. because we did ask you to hold your fire because we're going to give you a right of response. <laughs> To the, to the three um, <laughs> <laughs> panelists, so she will come. Can we turn this off? She will yeah, come back to you. Yeah, if we can. I don't need it all the time. Yeah. yeah. As much as I love William. In fact, we would love to see the, the film you itself. You should see the whole video. Yeah. Yeah. The film. <laughs> and another time in this room, we will. There are operas as well. But you've given us already enough food for thought, and in addition to, obviously, the book for our panelists to now comment and critique. Let me start. Lee, and then well, ladies first, if you don't mind, I'll be the third speaker, so Lee. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on this um, last day of term. I'm sure you all have, like we do, millions of things you should be doing, <laughs> and we really appreciate you turning up. And it's not a surprise that so many of you did come because of the role that Ruti has played in really framing the field of transitional justice. Um, I, I came to transitional justice through her book, her first book that Heinz Klug gave to me. I can't even remember how many, how many years ago that was. And it was like, oh, that's what this thing is called, you know, that we were beginning to look at. So it's just really nice to also see this culmination in the, the new book of articles that some of us have read, but also some new things that I hadn't read, and, uh, and particularly uh, the genealogy chapter, which um, I use in my own teaching, so it's it's really nice. And congratulations on a on a lovely book and a nice collection. Uh, as as most of you know, uh, Ruti really is the first scholar to use this term to to kind of to transitional justice, and I think helped us think historically about the role of Nuremberg trials. Um, but then this genealogy up to the present of how we address past wrongs. And in that way, she really did inform a whole, uh, a whole generation of scholarship around transitional justice. And this is scholars not only in law, but in sociology, in sociolegal studies, in political science, in criminology, and uh, many of you are in the room today. Uh, but what I think I'm going to pick up on is where Ruti left off which is how, um, how, she, how she is seen, I suppose, how her work is seen, how her approach is seen, and how the new generation is engaging it. 
I would say that in many ways, the way the new generation of transitional justice scholars are engaging is, is a critical look at it. Um, so exactly the contribution that she made in thinking about legal strategies for dealing with the past is what current generations are, are challenging and in some ways making Ruti uh, and, uh, and others, not just Ruti, but others, a kind of foil for a critique of transitional justice. So I thought what I'd do is sort of set out some of these critiques as a way to have Ruti address them, right? uh, and we can all engage in this discussion. Um, the, and, I, and I think a lot of this is a caricature. <laughs> One of the things that's very frustrating, I went to law and society meeting uh, a, a couple of years ago, and all of the panels on transitional justice, it became very apparent that no one reads anything about transitional justice, but assume they know what it is. And so there is a lot of confusion about what this thing is that comes out in, in some of the critiques of, uh, of the field, and particularly, I would say, uh, a group of scholars in which Ruti would be included. This is an, an emphasis in that scholarship on legalism, particularly laws and courts, as being what transitional justice is. We know that's not what it is, but that's one of the critiques, is an excessive uh, emphasis on legalism. And particularly international, uh, international uh, courts, international law, international the, the, the process of transitional justice coming from outside and having an impact domestically rather than uh, a domestic process, which Ruti in her comments <coughs> highlighted a domestic process that is ongoing and may be informing the international. <coughs> um, we would see this, that, that the third thing is the domestic, and sort of we want I want to look at these three sets of critiques, uh, the role of the domestic actors, and particularly whether uh, law, international courts, international law, international actors are the ones who should be shaping this global norm of human rights and imposing it on the domestic. So let me start with the, uh, the excessive um, and what I think the critics would call the unwelcome approach in transitional justice towards international legal and, uh, and normative intervention in uh, domestic processes. I think we could characterize this most by looking at the Colombian case, and, and Ruti mentioned that she'd just come back from Colombia. So uh, the role that the ICC has played in shaping the kind, putting constraints on the kinds of processes that the Colombian government and society may need to use in order to bring about peace after 50 odd years of conflict, and particularly making amnesty um, off, putting amnesty off the table as part of that negotiation. And this is not only in the ICC, but also in the UN in, in making amnesties a kind of bad word for, uh, for countries under t attempting to bring some kind of uh, end to conflict. So the use of transitional justice <coughs> in ongoing conflict isn't the way it was particularly thought of in the way Ruti had set out the concept, and yet now it is being used in ongoing conflicts as well as post-conflict, which she has looked at. I wanted to ask her to talk about that, whether this is really an excessive and unwelcome international intervention that constrains options at the domestic level. The second question is about this focus on trials, uh, kind of judicial mechanisms to deal with the past. 
Um, and again, this is a, a debate about amnesties and what role amnesties might play in certain contexts in certain times. One criticism that's often launched about transitional justice is that it's a one-size-fits-all and doesn't adapt to the different environments in which it is being used. And is this coming from the international, international area to impose a single version of what transitional justice is and mainly a legal trials-oriented prosecutorial model for transitional justice? If we think about going back again to the Colombian case, I've got Colombian on, Colombia on the brain right now. We go back to the Colombian case. How is it going to be possible to put 50 years of perpetrators from the left, the armed left, from the, within the government security forces like the army, and from the paramilitary forces to put these actors on trial? Isn't that model not going to work for a context like that? And what are the alternatives to still be within this global norm, global pressure about accountability? Um, the third comment I wanted to make is the, uh, the c claims from uh, many of the critics of transitional justice, um, or at least one approach within transitional justice, as not, again, not looking at the domestic processes and the value of traditional mechanisms of accountability, like the Gachacha in Rwanda or other forms of traditional justice. But uh, another layer of that would be to say that these approaches, the very legalistic international approaches, miss what is the root causes of some of the injustices that took place and, and the violence that took place, and calling for a, uh, a different lens, a non-liberal justice lens to think about transformative justice instead of transitional justice to deal with these root causes, particularly uh, moving away from a focus only on uh, physical integrity rights abuses and also looking at economic, cultural, uh, social, economic, and cultural abuses. Um, so I think I want to, that was actually a set of things about uh, tra traditional justice processes or more local processes about excessive liberalism in our approach to transitional justice and also thinking about the transformative root causes and whether this transitional justice can get at this or if we do need something new like the transformative approach. And I'll leave it there so that we can hear from others. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lee. This is going to be very useful to hear Ruti explain whether she thinks the critique is directed at her thinking or at the way in which it's been applied in the real world, which is, of course, different things. But now I'm going to turn to Shamish. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, and thanks to Leila and to TJR for, for the invitation and um, everyone, obviously, for being here. And what a now gather is the last day of term, so good on you for still wanting to hear anyone else talk at you at this point. Um, I'll try and be brief. I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to comment, um, in a sense, on what's been a great body of work, but specifically on, on these essays. Um, but in fact, I'm going to cheat a little bit and talk less about these essays and more about the state of the field. Um, and as, as Rudy knows, um, I, I did a review of this book for Global Policy in which I did, excuse my voice, um, some of the same things, really trying to pick up on some of the core themes that she's getting at, but also very much to talk about, what she, as rather unfairly, what she doesn't get at, but actually what I think some of her theoretical arguments set us up to try and confront 
even though she doesn't take on these specific issues that I want to pick up on. Um, and so by that I mean the following. Um, going back to her, um, to her book, Transitional Justice, and this comes through particularly then in the essays in this book, especially the one on genealogy, but a number of others, um, she really picks up on the ways in which we've got a real conundrum when we talk about doing justice in times of transition. And I won't rework through the arguments again. I think you're all familiar with them. But the real challenge of thinking about building a new solid foundation when, in fact, you're also ripping out the old foundation, or it has been ripped out already, and the ways in which that really pre presents a real conceptual challenge in terms of what are you talking about doing? Right. I mean, what are the foundations? What's the constitutionalism that comes with it? What is rule of law? Um, and so I think that's really essential because it starts to point out some of the ways in which we now see transitional justice fragmenting because we've never really gotten to grips with the fact that we actually do have this contradiction at the heart of things. Um, and so what I actually want to talk about um, are a number of the contradictions, which I think have been enduring and they've always been there, but we're facing them more and more perhaps because, as people say, the field has come of age or whatever, if we're going through a midlife crisis, certainly there's a crisis of confidence. Um, we love to attack ourselves and I think it's good to be self-critical, but I think it's also good to sort of try and categorize what the issues are that we're struggling with, right? It's not that it's all bad, it's that we've got problems and we kind of need to work through them. So I want to kind of point up a few of these. Um, one of them, and I think it goes to the crux of what I've already said, is the what is transition. And as someone who comes particularly from working on, um, on conflict-affected countries, um, I've struggled with this a lot, and it's, it's equally true of post-authoritarian countries, as we're seeing with Argentina and other countries, which keep revisiting the questions of accountability. But that we like to have this kind of neat box about what transition is, not only in terms of some kind of temporal frame, right? we know when it started, we know when it ended, we know what happened, and now we can judge it. Right, when in fact these things carry on and on and you get you know, what we call sort of congelado, we get frozen transitions, we get um, situations where countries start slipping backwards. And increasingly we also get situations where we're trying to use what we call transitional justice measures in places that are pretty transparently not transitional. Right? Um, either because we think they will help with one particular justice problem or because we think they're going to kickstart a transition. Now, I would say this is not what human rights advocates in Argentina or Chile or other places really thought they were up to. They thought they were up to responding to a particular set of violations and demands. And I'm not saying that perhaps these mechanisms couldn't or shouldn't be used in these other contexts, but that they're being done in a, in a pretty unreflective way. And I have, you know, a long a long list of examples that I often use, whether it's Kenya in different ways, Sri Lanka, um, in a different way, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. And I could pick apart each one, but we don't have the time for it. But I think we need to be a lot more careful if we're going to keep using this term about what we think is going on. And not just the temporal frame, but actually the teleological one. Right? There also seems to be a belief this may go to some of Lee's um, you know, observation of the critique about liberalism and legalism, that we're going from some kind of bad old days, whether it's authoritarian or whether it's conflict, and we're marching inexorably towards some perfect form of liberal democracy. That's the goal. Right? And that seems to be the frame that we continue to live in. And I think you know, until we actually come to grips with that, we're going to have a real problem continuing to talk about these things. And quite frankly, mechanisms simply will fail against these kinds of standards right? in these kinds of contexts. Um, I think we also need to recognize, and this goes to some of the examples I've already pointed to, um, that there are many situations in which the mechanisms that we want to hold up as mechanisms of justice 
are being deployed by governments or other actors for very cynical political reasons, right? And so we need to also put that in the frame. And I think that, again, comes to this question of, you know, you're, if you're creating things where you're not really sure what the foundation is, what rule of law is, what justice is, um, then all kinds of mechanisms can be put forward as this will do justice, which actually don't speak to demands of victims or demands of the citizenry, but serve other purposes. And you know, my favorite example here, although I've already mentioned Sri Lanka and the, the things like the, the LLRC, I think are a classic example of this, but also things like President Museveni referring only the situation in northern Uganda in relation to the LRA <coughs> as an extremely cynical use of international criminal justice for p particular political ends. And so I think we need to kind of get to grips with that. Um, now I think this comes alongside a series of things which I thought Lee would talk about more, but I'm not going to say much about it, which is debates about impact. Right, because as we start to have this more and more fragmented set of activities that we still call transitional justice, but are in very different contexts and are used in very in different ways by different people for different reasons, um, talking about impact, I think, is also incredibly complex. And it's not just a question of measurement. It's a question of for what, right? And this is my question. It's always been my question, but it becomes more and more strong over time. What are we doing these things for? And that's not to say we shouldn't do them, but we have a real lack of clarity in some cases. This may come to some of the professionalism and legalism. Look, you're having a transition. Surely you want some trials, the, the toolkit kind of critique. Um, but more generally, I think you know the demand for discussions of impact is very salutary, but it also comes in a kind of unstable environment where we need to really be asking for what and why and for who, sort of who's, who's assessing against what baseline because that's not just about meeting certain benchmarks in terms of um, democracy measurements and other things if we're actually not sure that our target is a certain kind of liberal democracy. So I think we need to be a little bit more honest about that. Um, and then I wanted to speak, and this is really my, my final cluster of things, um, about, and this relates directly, the increased expectations that have been placed upon transitional justice that go well beyond the kinds of goals that were framed in the Latin American transitions um, and many of the African transitions. And I don't think they're necessarily bad. They fall in line with a much broader social justice agenda but they kind of keep getting tacked on to a series of mechanisms that, quite frankly, haven't been shown to work wildly well for, for their original goals. And I, again, I really mean to be a friendly critic here, but I think we want to be honest about what we're dealing with. Um, and some of the sort of broadened goals are, I think, again, admirable, but potentially problematic. So particularly the need to address socioeconomic disparity, um, which may particularly be part of the underlying causes of conflict and human rights violations. So clearly these are important. Um, questions of development, questions of um, gender inequality, and you know, sort of persistent, so not, rather than just dealing with sexual and gender-based violence, which tends to be about as far as transitional justice usually goes, getting at more fundamental gender disparities, longer-term questions of access to justice, um, finding ways to potentially build um, civil society in the process. So there, these are really potentially admirable goals um, but I think the question is really out there now, and this has started to be opened up in the literature. Are these jobs for transitional justice, right? Or are they jobs for development actors? Are they jobs for civil society to do themselves with or without the assistance <coughs> of friendly international actors? Um, there are a lot of different ways to think about it. Um, 
but I think they're, they're important to raise, and they're important to raise in part because it keeps coming back to what do we want this thing to do in the context of what we think is a transition, where do we think we're going, so on and so forth. Um, and just one, one final note, because I think it continues to bedevil all of us, and we talk about it, but then we try and collapse these things, and I'm doing that currently in one of my own projects, so I plead guilty. Um, we keep struggling with the fact that a lot of our language and a lot of our mechanisms come out of quote-unquote post-authoritarian situations, and we've transferred them, um, good, bad, or indifferent, <coughs> to post-quote-unquote post-conflict situations. So aside from all of my objections to whether or not we're post-anything and questions about transition, um, and aside from the fact that, yes, there are many similarities, the demands are often quite similar, right? You have victims who want accountability, you've got civil society activists who are promoting these things, you do or don't have recalcitrant governments, you've got um, opposition groups in different forms, of, uh, in different positions, but in post-conflict situations you very clearly have an additional component, which is, as we alluded to, the question of reaching and sustaining peace agreements, managing armed groups. And so the challenges are different in ways sometimes I think we align because we do increasingly collapse all of these things together. So I'm going to stop there. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chandra. And uh, now, great. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much to to Leila. Uh, thanks very much to Ruti for for this invitation and really for um, I think more than ten years now of, of collaboration, starting with that that rooftop uh, in <laughs> Belgrade that that she mentioned. And and that that sort of meeting is relevant about what I want to say because at that time I was working for um, for civil society group. Uh, in in uh, Serbia, uh, sort of the first co we organized the first sort of conference that used the language transitional justice, uh, with uh, 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 at that time a very dramatic um, prosecutor of the Yugoslav Tribunal, Karla Del Ponte, arriving with dark glasses and uh, <laughs> and lots of security. Uh, and uh, and what what I have found. Uh, sort of particularly productive and, and fruitful in, in Rudy's uh, approach to, to transitional justice beyond the contributions that that have already been mentioned um, is is uh, uh, is this idea of globalizing transitional justice in a particular sense, which is going beyond the state, going beyond this obsession. Which uh, you know, frankly, when I started reading uh, some of the transitional justice later as uh, as a PhD student, some of the uh, what struck me was this disconnect between what I was observing uh, in places like the Balkans where there was, uh, uh, you know, real politics, uh, civil and uncivil society, uh, lots of international actors driving lots of different uh, agendas. And on the other hand, the discussion, the frameworks, uh, the ways of thinking about transitional justice, which were sort of, which had this obsession with the state, a sort of state actors, state purposes. Uh, state agendas and and, uh, uh, and 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 sort of state focus, uh, and, and what I find very fruitful in Ruti's thinking, with uh, in that sense, is this opening up uh, to uh, an array of other uh, actors and agendas, uh, and and civil society, both in the local, very local sense, very small groups that may or may not use that that language, as well as global civil society uh, more generally. And, and in her book, in the, in the sort of framing essay uh, uh, of, uh, of, of this collection, Rudy talks about uh, the fact that civil society, in a way, offered a new source of legitimacy 
for for transitional justice. But at the same time, she says civil society actors ought also draw uh, from this emerging uh, normativity of globalized transitional justice their own legitimacy, right? So it's a very symbiotic sort of very important uh, uh, relationship. And, and we've done some work with her since then, looking at, at civil society, and I think our entry point was this idea of agency. You know, agency in, the, in all the conversations about templates and, and mechanisms, somehow human agency was, was being lost. The idea that individuals <coughs> can appropriate the political initiative and become actors and shape the conditions uh, that affect them rather than simply recipients of international or, or domestically negotiated policies uh, from the top. And so when, when we started looking at this, our entry point was, <clears throat> you know, what is the impact uh, or the effects, the roles of, of civil society on transitional justice? That was the direction uh, in which we were, we were you know, studying and, and trying to understand. And I think what, what we assumed was that this was sort of the significant, important direction. And in a way, what, what we've missed uh, increasingly uh, has become apparent, which is sort of putting the question the other way around. What has been the impact of transitional justice uh, on civil society? Uh, and, and if I look at the impact uh, uh, and the sort of the, uh, the effects that, that transitional justice, these, the norms, the institutions, the discourse of globalized transitional justice, uh, you know, it made me think in, in sort of, for those of you who, uh, who have done civil society sort of uh, classical thinking from, from a Gramscian model, when, you know, we were thinking about transitional justice, civil society actors in, in that field, as a sort of field of culture, that field of culture and ideology that, that Gramsci talks about, which underpins and perpetuates dominant power relations and structures. And now we are, we are sort of increasingly thinking of it in uh, sort of the way Eastern European intellectuals uh, in, in the 70s and 80s were thinking about civil society. Havel rather than Gramsci. Civil society has become increasingly sort of parallel sphere uh, with uh, so much foreclosure, so much blockage at the level of, uh, uh, of the political level, they're almost becoming a, what, what you know, they, they call <coughs> the parallel polis. Uh, or anti-politics to take Conrad's uh, idea of, of civil society. <clears throat> now that sort of instinct to, to look at the relationship from the other direction has informed partly research, uh, research I've been doing with Chandra and another colleague, Phil Clark, which looked at the Balkans and East Africa uh, as sort of case studies of civil society and transitional justice. And I have a report on, um, on a dialogue we organized with actors from both regions uh, in Nairobi. <clears throat> and what, what that reveals is a, a sort of very different picture. And, and the picture that comes through is that there is a very strong backlash against transitional justice. And that backlash often takes the form of crackdown and backlash against civil society. Uh, particularly in, in, in those cases, but I think uh, in a number of other uh, global regions as well. Now, what does this backlash actually mean? Well, in very plain terms, most activists would describe it as increasing state repression, right? So there is uh, a certain discourse of demonizing these actors uh, in the media, particularly those advocating accountability, but also others, uh, even uh, a report uh, a sort of publishing, uh, reporting on human rights violations can trigger a massive 
uh, crackdown. So demonizing uh, in the media, often accusations of a sort of these actors serving a new colonial uh, or imperialist agenda uh, on the on the ground. Also sustained efforts uh, to use law in, in, in another way, to use law to adopt legislation that limits uh, media freedom but also restricts very, very much uh, the potential for funding and operations of, uh, of civil society groups. And I think in many cases we are also seeing direct harassment and intimidation of, of human rights defenders. And so this is happening in a sort of context in which I think globally uh, there is a sort of shrinking space for civil society and a real crackdown uh, on, on civil society groups, particularly, uh, as I said, uh, human rights defenders uh, are coming increasingly under attack. So uh, in the sort of final words uh, uh, that I have, just a few thoughts on why that that may be happening and, uh, and what does it mean for the globalized sort of transitional justice uh, uh, framework uh, and, and how we might be thinking about that going forward. So one issue that, uh, that appears to be sort of recurrent uh, is the return of a certain Cold War style geopolitics, uh, uh, you know, uh, the politics of confrontation and polarization, which allows domestic regimes to uh, sort of name uh, uh, civil society actors as foreign agents. We've just heard that Russia has now officially banned the open society uh, from any operations in, uh, in, in that country. Uh, uh, and also the local, those groups that are benefiting from uh, international connections uh, or funding. So there is, a, uh, uh, there is that sort of shrinking space uh, uh, within the, that new sort of Cold War uh, geopolitics, but at the same time it is coming with a, a very interesting discourse of legitimation. So what you see is the rise of moral populism. There is a sort of uh, claim to an authentic local culture uh, which is under attack by uh, you know, human rights norms for accountability, uh, human rights norms uh, relating to gay rights, or uh, there is a sort of uh, what what Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm, would call the invention of tradition. Traditions are reinvented and then mobilized for political purposes in order to preserve sort of an imagined uh, uh, an imagined local culture from from the corrupting influence uh, of those actors. <coughs> the other one, uh, the other reason I think goes back to to what uh, Chandra was talking about, which is uh, particularly relevant, I think, in conflict-related states. Uh, this experiment uh, of, of liberal peace building uh, in conflict-affected uh, conflict environments has, in fact, led, paradoxically, in most places, to entrenchment of complicity. It's often complicit not only in human rights violations, but also in economic crimes. So the very predatory political economy which, which is set in motion during the, the conflict and persists uh, in, in what may or may not be uh, a period uh, of transition. Uh, and as a result of that, you know, because, the, because international actors depend on these elites as you know, state builders and peace builders, uh, they are increasingly tolerant of the sort of pushback against norms uh, of accountability uh, human rights, but also increasingly uh, attacks and crackdown on civil society groups uh, that are raising these questions uh, at the local level. And then finally, I think, and, uh, and this is where I've done uh, 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 most, most work 
uh, on this issue, I think it's the, the global extension <coughs> of, of the war on terror. Uh, what we are seeing increasingly in new theaters uh, that are incorporated in the war on terror is what, uh, what we saw very early on in places like uh, Afghanistan, which is again a set of actors that are, uh, that, uh, are often complicit in uh, both past and ongoing human rights abuses. Uh, are becoming the allies or the proxies through which uh, you know, this war is fought on behalf uh, of their international patrons. And as a result, these abuses, past abuses and ongoing abuses committed in the context of the war on terror are no longer scrutinized uh, and, uh, uh, and again, you know, in a way in which impunity operated uh, in a sort of discursive and political framework very reminiscent of the Cold War with sort of the war on terror uh, being the new sort of Cold War. So given these developments in, uh, and sort of challenges and the shrinking space uh, for civil society and, and this really symbiotic relationship between civil society and transitional justice in the globalized, uh, in the globalized framework, uh, I, I just wonder what, what, what that means and what, uh, what, what the effects may be on the field as such. Well, thank you very much, Yavra, and to the three of you. And if I may just um, pull out, I think there are many questions, and you've picked up on, on all of them, Ruti, but two, two, two questions I would um, pull out. The first has to do with what exactly is critiqued in the critique of transitional justice, or the toolkit critique, as Chandra was saying. Um, is it a bias in the concept itself and in the way it's developed and redeveloped, including by Ruti, that the, somehow an, that would be maybe an overextended concept that doesn't do justice to justice itself in some ways? Or is it really uh, about its implementation, its instrumentalization, a lot of what Chandra and Lee were talking about? So that's one question, and, and on this point, I simply want to mention one um, memory, really, that in this very room, in 2004, uh, Yavor, you mentioned Phil Clark. I want to recognize Phil because he was one of the pillars the, uh, who created, really, who, who sustained uh, OTAGR here in this, in, in this um, department. And, um, and, and Phil, along with a wonderful student of ours, Zach Kaufman, um, organized this conference uh, 10 years later after genocide on, on Rwanda. And indeed, the subtitle was Transitional Justice, Post-Conflict Reconstruction, and Reconciliation in Rwanda and Beyond. And, and I was kind of part of the, the co-conveners and worked on the book. And I think there was a lot, part of our bias was kind of an agnostic notion as to whether TJ can do all the work as a concept. And maybe we just need to put it alongside other concepts. So, I mean, just, you know, and it was a, a sad but important moment, this uh, celebration, this uh, event. Now, so the second kind of constellation really is, is the way uh, Lee started us off and we could call it, you know, the kind of post-colonial agenda tension or sometimes I, I ask, can we rescue the rescue narrative as it were? And if transitional justice is part of a global rescue narrative of societies, um, how do we kind of reconcile, Ruti, the, the critique of top-down internationalism from Lee and in part from Chandra and Yavor's point, you know, can we both emphasize with Yavor, you know, how domestic actors, civil society uh, are shaped and empowered by international normative structure, 
and at the same time recognize the overbearing and sometimes counterproductive uh, character of top-down normativity that also closes space. I mean, is there a way to reconcile these, t mm. these two scho wonderful scholars? Um, and maybe part of the, uh, the question here is to distinguish, I would say, between the state and a critique of the state and the domestic. I think conceptually that is very important in this story. But uh, I will then turn the floor to you, Ruti, to respond to all of these uh, provocations. <laughs> how, many, how many days do you have? <laughs> I'm sure you have other. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, uh, all of you, for a very rich uh, set of comments. And uh, um, I obviously am only going to be able to um, you know, pick and choose. And um, you know, I also would like to have an opportunity for Q&A and having more of a dialogue. So if I miss something that you want to hear about, let's, let's do it. So I, I'll pick up with uh, Calypso's um, question. And I really think this is extremely interesting, particularly in, in uh, an environment like Oxford with its interdisciplinarity. Um, uh, and that is you know, this question of whether, you know, can, can this concept and the field do all of this work that we're talking about? Because it isn't just rescue work. It's also history and memory and philosophy and you know, the, whatever, ju you know, justice has so many faces. So, I was, uh, I have to say, when I first, you know, I mean, I kind of coined the term, I smushed together transition and justice, and my view was that the justice in those times that, you know, Argentina and so, was not perfect, was imperfect, and it was very clear, I mean, they couldn't, they, and it's actually the absence of trials, it was not trials uh, then, and, um, and it was a lot of other things, and so the you know, I think that's a very interesting question and obviously one that is more, you know, of a heuristic here. It's not that we're going to answer that, but I think that there are interesting uh, economic and kind of disciplinary questions uh, it, that a university needs to confront, which is, what is this field? Um, is, it I, is it mostly IR? Is it, is, it, is it, you know, is the concern that it started with IR and now seems to be in international law, maybe because there's money in, in international <coughs> law. No, maybe it has nothing to do with this panel. Sociology. I, I think that there are conceptual questions here about what the field is, and even if there is a field, we would need to uh, go to philosophers of field studies. What makes something a field? And I've always embraced the interdisciplinarity of it. I'm someone who's kind of on the periphery of law. Uh, generally, I'm the only lawyer in the, in the room whenever I go to conferences. So I'm kind of amused to be associated with the, with the straight-up law uh, position. And I want to say something about that because um, one of the, you know, this book reflects, and again, it's not, a, you know, it's a book of essays. So it's obviously not going to, you know, it's not the way a book, a sustained argument from beginning to end. It kind of reflects uh, what I would say is an ongoing genealogy that I have going in my head, and sometimes I express it in writing or in dialogue, which is following the, the, this concept, uh, an associated cluster of concepts for, since the 80s. And so, you know, that's, you know, so we could say that that term r r relates to this set of ideas, and the point of the genealogy is to see how the ideas are being discussed or acted on at at different times. But my approach to it, you know, and this is a question of my own methodology and my own, my own approach to this heuristic, is that 
I, I don't see myself as advocating for what I discuss in this book or, or, or the first book. I did, uh, my work is in this, again, and it's something that might be conceptually uh, difficult, but it reflects a tension between normative work, top-down theory, you know, folks who are working only in the academy and not uh, out in the field, and, you know, that kind of normative work, and pure dis descriptive kind of, you know, um, uh, and it's not really, it's not about quantitative, it's just that my work has always been something in between and I want to say it's interpretive, okay, whatever, you know, let's just call it that. And so that's what this is. It's a part of an ongoing genealogy which seeks to interpret developments in the field. It's not a brief for these developments. Uh, but, but there are aspects of the role of law that I'd like to address uh, since that's been an issue here. And, and what's interesting, I think, about everyone uh, on this panel uh, is that they, they have been part of interdisciplinary conversations. I think it's really sometimes you know, uh, a challenge to do that. I, uh, often it's easier to stay in one's comfort zone, but I think all of them have, you know, have sought to try to have that conversation. Sometimes people overstate the benefits of those conversations. You, have you ever been in that situation that are like, oh, interdisciplinary, and it sounds so great, and then you go and they're like, okay, the lawyers are talking to the lawyers, the IRP, you know, and it's, and it's difficult. And I would like to have more of these conversations. But I think that, that, you know, part of the issue for me is that sometimes folks in politics think that, think of law uh, as um, pure uh, formalism or constraint, as if it's just one thing. And I guess it depends, um, you know, what philosophy of law you, you pursue. Uh, uh, and I tend to... <coughs> You know, be an, uh, you know there too someone who thinks of law as having some relationship to politics, and it's something that you know uh, uh, informs my work. So, I've never seen law as kind of you know, as I said, this very formalist uh, view of it. Now, moving right along, since uh, we, we need to answer all those questions, <laughs> um, uh, I would say that you know again the the the. Um, interpretive um, motif of, of globalizing transitional justice, and the reason I picked that essay is because I saw the current moment as beyond the transition, which has been referred to in, in everyone's comments, beyond the stricto sensu political transition, beyond the state, and, and Yabor in particular spoke about that, and, and um, uh, Lee as well, um, and, and then the question is, well, how do we evaluate or how do we even wrap our heads around this concept given those changes? I think it was much easier to do research and writing in the early period. And I, and I think, you know, I commend all of you for, for thinking about this, but I think the, whole, the question of research and also evaluation, assessment of, of the goal, you know, first of all, uh, you know, as Chandra raised in her, uh, uh, in her comments, what is transition? What is justice, right? And then, you know, how can we barrel along to evaluation of particular measures if, we, if there's no clarity on that? And I think there isn't clarity, and part of what I was getting at uh, with this globalizing transitional justice, again, a heuristic is to say there are other actors, not just, uh, you know, this small band of, re of well, you could say they were highly, in general, undemocratic, right? It was small groups that, that uh, you know, made those agreements uh, in most of the situations that I know about. Um, and they needed to, you know, that, that was one way of thinking about those agreements. And now we have other actors that are engaged in the, uh, you know, in some kind of constructive engagement. But so, so I just want to say I don't think we're going to have put, be able to put the genie back in the bottle as to political reality. The international institutions are not going to go away. They are, have all, there's only more density of international law. 
Uh, in a world that is unstable and lacks political integration, it lacks world government, um, it is actually important. And here I will say something normative. I do think that international institutions can play a salutary, salutary role um, given the absence of political integration and, and instability. So the question then becomes, given all of these actors, how might we you know, think about what a constructive engagement with those institutions and actors would be? And here um, in my, in my uh, you know, I really don't see myself, as, as Lee said, she said it was a caricature. If anything, I'm, I've been one of the leading um, cri critics of, of the role of certain NGOs who have been engaged in, let's call it the toolbox approach to transitional justice. I've, I've, I've been writing on this. I've been one, one, I think I was probably the first person who you know, critiqued this out loud, and, it w and it's an issue, right, to do that. Uh, but the point is that, um, that there can, certainly given the range of problems that we're talking about, that this, that this <coughs> term in, you know, encapsulates, uh, um, you know, how, how could we imagine that there would just be uh, um, you know, a toolbox or what is known now in the international arena, you know, now UN has a rapporteur on this and so on and so on. It's kind of a best practices approach to transitional justice. So, you know, again, this is not coming from law. This is kind of a bureaucratization and these are institutions that exist in the real world and I don't think that they're going away. So for me, the question then becomes in terms of the cool bodies about this, how do we, how do we, how should we think about them? What, you know, uh, how should we conceptualize their relationship? So I'm glad that, uh, Colombia was raised because I came back from Bogota the week of the peace deal, and I, and I had an amazing um, uh, set of experiences there. I've reviewed the agreement, uh, uh, in both in <coughs> Spanish and in English, and it's my sense that the agreement um, it, it reflects a constructive engagement by the country's leaders with the ICC. I actually think this is the first uh, ICC-inspired uh, peace deal. Um, and I think it's a paradigm, actually, for the future. And I realize these are very bold terms. It might, it, the agreement might not stick. But let me just say that my sense of this agreement, and again, you know, I, I was a, for comparative advantage, I had a comparative advantage. I could talk to people, you know, in, in, in Spanish and read the deal. The deal uh, does amnesty, very limited amnesty for political crimes. And that's something that has very little definition in international law. There's no uh, agreement on what a political crimes would be. But they are not within the jurisdiction of the ICC. So that's something that the ICC would have nothing to, uh, to say about. But as far as the other aspects of, of this deal, which <coughs> involve prosecutions, they, it sets up a carrot. And, and I guess the carrot reflects my view of what a constructive engagement with law would look like, which is that the, uh, the ICC, um, uh, as you know, is guided by, I think, uh, what is a great a principle of global governance, or could be a great principle of global governance, which is complementarity. And complementarity means that the ICC has jurisdiction when the country is unable or unwilling. So that was the par those were the parameters, and the ICC was really quite reluctant uh, to uh, hold trials in The Hague for what was going on in Colombia, and that was that would have been the first uh, order of business. They they uh, reviewed, they w went to Colombia, they talked with people over a period of years uh, since 2009, and um, and it was uh, <coughs> you know fortunately both the FARC and the military came to an agreement that on the most serious crimes serious war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, that there wouldn't be an amnesty. But what, the, what they uh, came up with, when I think this was very creative, was li very limited and, and alternative sentencing. 
Now, it's interesting, I, and then I went back to the Rome Statute of the ICC, and I see that there is room for this, that there is room, that there's very little said about sentencing, because the idea is that sentencing should be something that is reconciled with national traditions. Interestingly, the week of the deal, um, uh, September 23rd, the, the deal is announced. September 24th, Fatou Bensouda, the chief prosecutor of the ICC, says she's heartened and encouraged by the deal in Colombia. So I have to say, I don't see the deal in Colombia as an example of, of conflict with the International Criminal Court. On the contrary, um, my conversations with folks in Colombia, many of the, of the people that I spoke with were, would, were against any deal with the FARC. They thought that they should hit, hit them with uh, full, full justice, much more than what was agreed to here. The highest uh, sentence here would be eight years, five to eight years, if they cooperated with this uh, truth process. So I guess you know, the, the view is that it, when there are conflicts about uh, uh, unique, uh, 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 you know, if unique, uh, you know, say something tangible like land, you need to add space, you ha and law can add carrots and sticks. Um, you know, it's uh, money, reparations. That is, this is, uh, I think, invites uh, us to think about what constructive engagement with internationals, um, international institutions could look like. And again, I don't think they're going away. Neither is the domestic going away. And in fact, Yavor spoke about the fact that, there, that this is a relationship. And it's not just a relationship between the ICC, you know, top and, and, and the domestic. The domestic will affect the precedence for the ICC, and I actually think this could become a landmark, perhaps even a paradigm, for how the International Criminal Court could work in a more constructive way with countries uh, and, and create uh, more space uh, for this. Anyway, I know that um, uh, time is short, uh, but I just, uh, you know, just uh, coming back to Yavor and Chandra's points about some of the um, the interactions here, I think that they uh, and and uh, Lee as well in their own work, uh, we're all part of both domestic um, uh, institutions and domestic uh, conversations, but we're also all in engagement with international actors and international institutions, even something like funding. Funding often comes from abroad with you know <laughs> different goals. So. You know, it, it, it seems to me that we, there's a research agenda here uh, definitely about the globalization of transitional justice, uh, about the uh, definition, the ongoing uh, definition or conceptualization of these terms. Should, does it belong in one place? Is it a field at all? I think this is something that, um, that academics would be uniquely situated to, uh, uh, to talk about. But uh, in terms of, of the ability of transitional justice, quote unquote, to address some of the deeper problems of justice that Chandra raised at the end. You know, again, um, here um, I do see a conflict and there are tensions. Um, I was in Tunisia two years ago, two, three years ago, and all this, all this hope was being raised and, and located in transitional justice. There was a ministre of transitional justice. And, um, you know, I, I actually w was down there on Human Rights Day, December 10th, uh, 2011, and with a film about Argentina. And, and someone said, look, just talk about the film and say what lessons they can learn from Argentina. <laughs> you know, that's one thing I never do. I never, you know, talk about lessons. But what was very interesting to me was that, um, that all justice was being uh, channeled into this, into this term. 
And there are real dilemmas here. And they were patently clear in Tunisia and, and in the rest of, you know, many of the other countries that are undergoing political change in, in, in the Middle East. And that is that there are pressing issues of absence of rule of law, but there are also tremendous poverty and economic uh, 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 gaps. And um, you know, clearly, if you choose certain victims and a narrower approach to justice, then you're not engaging. And you know, this is what Chandra says. So we need to be, I think, more self-reflexive and aware of some of our choices and of the discourse that we use um, uh, as much as possible. So thank you again for a great set of comments. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I,